Thanks, Gabe. Oh, yep. So again, not much sleep. Here we are. Um, but we are continuing on uh, in our uh, sermon series uh, known as Missional Profiles, what we've called them. Um, so when we began the year, we spent five weeks in the Great Commission, looking at this commission that Jesus gave his disciples to go and make disciples of all nations, um, baptizing them in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, and teaching them to observe all that I've commanded you. We sum that up in kind of these three words that Jesus has told us to go, make, and teach, living missionally, uh, sharing our faith in evangelism, making and baptizing new Christians, and then teaching. Go, make, and teach. And so now for these nine weeks, uh, we're looking then at three different profiles or portraits, if you will, of people who lived this missional lifestyle. Three people who obeyed God's command to go, three people who obeyed God's command to make, and three people who obeyed God's command to teach. Today we're going to be looking at another portrait or another missional profile of somebody who obeyed God's command to teach. We're going to be looking at um, the scribe, the priest, Isaiah. I mean, uh, Ezra, not Isaiah, and Ezra. Again, not much sleep. That was a couple weeks ago as Isaiah. Today, we're looking at Ezra. I promise I have my notes and we're in the right sermon. You're not going to hear the same sermon from two weeks ago. Um, The scribe, Ezra. Uh, we'll be in Ezra chapter 7, verse 10. We'll really just be camping out in that one verse today. Ezra chapter 7, verse 10. Now, Ezra was a contemporary to Nehemiah. Nehemiah is who we looked at last week. So they were there around the same time in Jerusalem. Ezra got there um, just a little bit before Nehemiah did. So again, if you remember, the state of Jerusalem, the state of Israel, during this time of Ezra, is they had just been released from Babylonian captivity. Israel was united, Saul, David, Solomon, kingdom splits, north and south. North gets captured by Assyria, assimilated, they disappear, lost tribes. South stays faithful for a little while, but then they get captured by Babylon, go into exile for 70 years. Well, then Babylon gets overtaken by Persia, and the king of Persia, Cyrus, at the very end of 2 Chronicles, then releases the Israelites after 70 years of captivity to go back to Jerusalem be able to rebuild the temple that had been destroyed, rebuild their city, to live there again. So right after 2 Chronicles in our Bible, we then get to Ezra. And that's where Ezra picks up as the Israelites get back to Jerusalem after 70 years of exile. Now the first six chapters of Ezra span about 21 years, and they center around the rebuilding of the temple. And they eventually get it rebuilt and dedicated. And you hear some prophets like Haggai and Zechariah are introduced here. Their books, their uh, books in the Old Testament fit into this context. And eventually, at the end of chapter 6, the temple is dedicated, and the first Passover is celebrated then with this rebuilt temple. But something interesting, if you read through Ezra, you will have gotten to this point in Ezra and not heard the name Ezra yet. You're over halfway through, and you haven't been introduced to the namesake of the book. Well, we get introduced to him in chapter 7. Uh, And so in chapter 7, verse 1, again, to set the context, um, the the author says, after these events, that's kind of um, uh, a misdirection, if you will, because those three words, after these events, actually constitute about 58 years later after chapter 6. So the author kind of just hits the fast forward button 
past uh, a few decades into 58 years later. So fast forward button, if you don't know what that is, these things called DVDs or Blu-rays, used to press a button, could fast forward it. Um, I shared over the weekend with our students an illustration about a Blu-ray DVD I had. I thought it was like really high tech and like cutting edge and relevant, and they all laughed at me like, what's a Blu-ray? How old are you? What are you on Facebook? I'm like, I guess so, please, be nice to me. but no, that, that's what, again, if you're a student here you don't know what a fast-forward button is, that's what it does. And so the author here clicks the fast-forward button and fast-forwards 58 years now to the year 458 B.C. And Ezra shows up now on the scene. So they've been free from captivity about 21 years. Now, what do you think the people in Israel would have been acting like a, a few years after being released from exile? They've been in captivity for 70 years. God then set them free through uh, controlling the king's heart to release them, go back to Jerusalem. They're now free from captivity, back in their city. 21 years, rebuilt the temple. What are they doing? Man, surely they're just worshiping God. Surely they're just grateful for their deliverance, God's deliverance of them from slavery. Surely that's how they're acting. Worshiping God still for rescuing them from exile, bringing them back to the promised land. But what we find in the book of Ezra is they actually are acting the exact opposite. They have forgotten their rescuer. They had reinstituted sacrifices and festivals and rebuilt the temple, but their hearts were far from God. And they were attempting to cover their disobedience with religion. What we see over and over in the Old Testament, into the New, and even into our lives today, it's a danger for us attempting to cover maybe disobedience from following Jesus throughout the week with church attendance, trying to take religion and cover our own disobedience. They had turned their back on the God that had rescued them. They were trying to mask their sin with religion. We won't get into it. It's a whole different sermon, but it's, we should be careful to not do the same. These Israelites had fallen right back into some sin that led to their exile in the first place. So just 70 years of captivity, 21 years of freedom, and they've already turned their back again. They had gone back into the things that got them exiled in the first place. Now, before we get too hard on the Israelites, we've got to understand that we aren't that much different. We aren't much different than their hearts. We, too, before we get too hard on them, we need to imagine what these exiled Israelites would read about us if they had the chance. As we sit here and read about them, what would they read about us in our lives? People who have been able to hear the full story of God's redemptive plan, coming to save us in the flesh through Jesus Christ, living a perfect life, dying in our place. God did this, and then God revealed all of this to us through his word, which we now have multiple of in our shelves, on our phones, just a click away, a tap away. We can study, we can research, we can go back to the original languages if we want to. It's all at our fingertips, and not for them in just a few scrolls in the synagogue. For us, it is everywhere, and yet, if they were reading about our lives, how often do we neglect that and give all of our time to Netflix and to Instagram? How often do we fill up our calendars with stuff and push Jesus out? Now, I say that not to make us feel bad, but we need to understand we aren't much different than them. Our hearts haven't changed very much. With all of that knowledge and all of that accessibility, we are just as easily distracted. 
we aren't much different. It's like the songwriter says in one of my favorite hymns, we are prone to wander. Lord, I feel it. Prone to leave the God I love. As we don't just drift and wander into godliness. We don't just drift into holiness. That's our tendency is to drift away from God. If we don't fight against him, if we don't sit passively, we drift away from him. We don't just accidentally become godly. And neither do these Israelites. They had drifted away from the God that had rescued them. They needed to be reminded of their rescuer. They needed to hear again who God was. They needed reform. They needed a reformation. But who would lead it? And how would it be done? Enter Ezra, stage left. The task is large, but he is the man chosen by God to lead this reformation in Jerusalem. And like any great reformation within the people of God throughout history, it was founded and built on the word of God. And so as we see in his introduction here in chapter 7, verse 10, what made Ezra so uniquely equipped to lead this reformation and why, as the previous verse, verse 9 says, God's gracious hand was on Ezra. Why? Why was Ezra equipped? Why was God's gracious hand on him? Well, that brings us to our text this afternoon in verse 10. Let's read together to see why he was the man for the job. Verse 10 says this, because Ezra had determined in his heart to study the law of the Lord, obey it, and teach its statues and ordinances in Israel. Ezra had determined in his heart to study the law of the Lord, to obey it, and to teach its statutes and ordinances in Israel. Ezra is such a clear and practical example. As we look at this missional profile of someone who obeyed God's command to teach. So as we look at him today, particularly in verse 10, I want us to see four things that are important in our life if we are to live missionally, especially if we are to teach. There's four things I want us to look at here in verse 10 is the importance of determination, the importance of study, the importance of obedience, and the importance of teaching. Importance of determination, of study, of obedience, and teaching. You'll see that the outline's fairly clear because it just comes right from verse 10. So first, the importance of determination. You hear that Ezra determined in his heart. I love that phrase. Some of your translations may say, he set his heart on, he determined in his heart. You hear that early on in his life, Ezra was a young man at this moment, it early on in his life, he said, this is the trajectory my life is going to go on. I'm going to make the decision. I'm going to determine in my heart. I'm going to set my heart. This is the goal, the target that my life is going to aim at. I am going to determine to do this. There's this sort of determination and effort that is needed. Because we looked at and talked about just a little while ago, we don't just drift into godliness. D.A. Carson, a New Testament scholar, one of my favorite New Testament scholars, put it this way, said people do not drift towards holiness apart from grace-driven effort. People do not gravitate towards godliness, prayer, obedience to the scripture, faith, and delight in the Lord. 
Apart from grace-driven effort. I love, I love that phrase. We could spend the rest of the time talking about that, but we're going to go back to Ezra 7.10. Uh, grace-driven effort. You see the thrust and the need of effort that is required in the Christian life. We have to work. We have to try. We have to determine in our hearts. We have to set our hearts on this and begin to work towards it. Now, there's a really important word right before it, that that effort, that determination must be driven by grace. It must be fueled by God's love and his mercy and his kindness. But still, it doesn't take away the fact that we have to work. We have to make every effort. We have to strive. Those are the biblical languages that the New Testament uses. Or here in Ezra, he determined in his heart. It's similar language to the early church in Acts chapter 2. In Acts 2.42, what did they do? They devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching fellowship, breaking of bread, and to prayer. They didn't just stumble into it. They didn't go, oh, we've got nothing to do. I guess we'll do all of these things. They said, no, we are going to devote ourselves. We are going to determine in our hearts and set our hearts on following Jesus, knowing him and making him known. Friends, as we then look to try to obey this great commission, we need to understand, like Ezra, there has to be a point in our life where we determine what we're going to set our hearts on. We have to determine what it is we are going to be pursuing. And we see that Ezra here was a young man whenever he determined this. I find it interesting, and I begin to see it more and more, it's often in those ages, students, college, young adult, that things like this happen often. God gets a hold of a young person's heart and sets the trajectory of their entire life. So many great missions movements throughout church history began with college students. You look at great teachers like Jonathan Edwards, who wrote, goodness, who knows how many millions of words on what the Bible teaches, his grandfather was Aaron Burr, who famously shot Alexander Hamilton, the starred in the recent musical on Broadway. This was Edwards. But when Edwards, before Jonathan Edwards was Jonathan Edwards, Jonathan Edwards was a teenager. And when he was a teenager at 19 years old, he wrote his life resolutions. And he went through and had 70 things that he was going to be resolved to do in his life. And I'll just read the first one. He said that I am resolved that I will do whatsoever I think to be most to God's glory and my own good, profit, and pleasure in the whole of my duration without any consideration of the time, whether now or never, so many myriads of ages hence, resolve to do whatever I think to be my duty and most for the good and advantage of mankind in general. The 19-year-old. Granted, he graduated at Yale at like 15. The guy was kind of a genius. But still, he, at that point in his life, he said, I'm going to be resolved to make my life about one thing. I'm going to make much of the glory of God and work to make much of the good of others. He continued on. If you haven't read the resolutions, they are incredibly encouraging and convicting. Just go home, type in Jonathan Edwards' resolutions and just read through them. But he was 19 when that happened. 19 when he determined in his heart. To live for God's glory and not his own. This is why I have a particular heart for uh, young students, for young adults, for college ministry. Because I just see it over and over and over again. Whenever God gets a hold of a student's heart, an entire trajectory is shifted of a life. And I also find that often students have more of an open-handedness than a lot of adults do. 
we can kind of get our lives figured out. I think I can say we. I'm an adult now. I, I watch Blu-rays, so I'm in that category. We kind of have this closed-fistedness of our lives and our plans and our dreams, and we've got it figured out. A student wants to just follow Jesus, wants to know him. When God gets a hold of their hearts, there's an open-handedness like we see with Isaiah when he said, God, here I am, send me. He didn't know what he was signing up for. He just said, I'm available. And I see this in so many, often, so many times in student ministry and in young adult ministry. Ezra was a young man when he determined in his heart to give his life to God's word. Jonathan Edwards was a teenager when he determined in his heart to live a life glorifying of God and helping of others. The students and young adults here today, what have you determined in your heart to do with your life? What have you set your heart on? What are you aiming at? What do you want to find? You want to find a fulfilling career? You want to find a spouse and a family? You want to find and just run after pleasure maybe within this world? Or will you determine in your heart to follow Jesus? Resolve to know him and make him known in your life living for his glory and for the good of others, however that might look. A goodness for all of us. What have you determined in your heart to do with your life? What have you set your heart on? If you don't know what you've set your heart on, Jesus has given us a good diagnostic to find out what's in our heart. He says that out of the overflow of the mouth, the heart speaks. So if you want to know what your heart loves, just listen to what you've said. If you want to know what your heart wants to accomplish, just look at what your calendar has planned. Listen to our words and look at our schedules. They will reveal what our heart wants and what our heart wants to do. And so look and see what does your calendar say about what your heart has determined to do with your life. If someone were to look at your schedule, what would they say that you're determined to do? What would your calendar reveal that your heart is set on? And if you want to change, if you want to rearrange your calendar, then reset the trajectory of your life today. And today, determine in your heart to follow Jesus. Be resolved. Be devoted. Those are biblical words. It takes work. It won't just happen. But friends, it is so worth it. And so if we determine in our hearts then, okay, God, I want to be determined then to make much of you, to work for the good of others, but what exactly should I set my heart on? Well, this is also where Ezra helps us. He shows us not just the importance of determination, but now he shows us what we are to determine to set our hearts on. In general, he said he determined to set his, uh, set his heart on God's word and to do three things in particular with God's word, to study it, to obey it, and to teach it. To study it, to obey it, and to teach it. Look back at Ezra 7, verse 10. Now, Ezra had determined in his heart to do what? To study the law of the Lord. Now, at this time, they had the first five books of the Bible, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Deuteronomy. Numbers, that's five. Had the first five books of the Bible, known as the Pentateuch, often referred to as the law, are here the law of the Lord. So Ezra said, I'm going to study these five books of the Bible. I'm going to determine to set my heart on 
studying, and he shows us the importance of study. And he dives into it. And so for us, we don't just have the first five books of the Bible. We have the entire revelation of God. And so for us in our lives, do we determine in our hearts to study this book, to study his word? Yes, the first five books, but also the entirety of it. Have you seen the importance of study in your life? Sometimes I think we can try to distance ourselves from study or from teaching in the church because we're afraid. Maybe you've been around churches where people know a lot about God and they're just kind of like dry and cold and just kind of jerks. You're like, I don't even want to be around you. You know a lot of the Bible, but Jesus also told us to love people, kindness, patience, fruit of the Spirit. We should try those. Maybe you've been around people that you worry that knowledge about God, studying God might lead to this kind of academic or uh, dry and cold faith. And friends, that, while that is true of a lot of people, we've got to see here and also in Jesus' command in the Great Commission, studying and teaching God's word isn't something we should be ashamed of. It's something he's told us to do. Ezra here determined in his heart to study the law of the Lord. Jesus told us not just to go, not just to make, but he also told us to teach. So teaching and studying should be a part of what it is we are determined to do. So how can you study in your life? How do you study this book? Studying and determining in your heart to wrap yourself up with this book. Not just trying to master it, but to have it master you. What are ways that you can do that? Goodness, there's a million ways. But I will give you just a handful. Corporately and a handful individually. And to see the need for both. Corporately, one way you can determine in your heart to study the law of the Lord is to come to church regularly. Come here as we then gather together to hear from God's word. This is the center point of what our service is about. We want to lift up his word and sit underneath it. We want to open it up and study it. We want to, uh, to give ourselves to it. So come to church often, and my hope and prayer and our desire is that we would study his word and begin to understand it more and more. Come to church. Another way you can determine in your heart to study God's word, the law of the Lord, is to then get plugged into a community group. We've designed our community groups to be able to discuss the previous week's sermons. We want to take God's word, and then we want to then drill it even deeper into our hearts begin to see the way it's applying. What is the way in which God is speaking to us? How can we drive this word deeper into our hearts? Another way, corporately, to study God's word is in the future, signing up for any Bible studies or theology classes that we might have. Right, We're nomads right now. We're tabernacling through Claremont, so we don't really have a home. But our hope is at some point to have one. And when we do, we're going to be having other classes, Bible studies, even this summer, we're looking to a men's and women's Bible study. When those things are offered, if you have the availability and you have the time, go and plug into them. Learning together to be able to study God's word, to learn. We want to be able to devote ourselves and determine in our hearts to study God's word. So those are some ways to be able to determine to do that corporately and not individually. The best thing that you can do, pick up your Bible and start reading it. Because here's the deal. I know that it's big. I know it can feel overwhelming. But let me just tell you, the author of the book, if you are a Christian, lives inside of you. And he will help you to learn, to be able to understand it, to be able to wrestle with it. We still need teachers. We need one another. But guys, pick up this book and start reading it. 
begin to study it, begin to ask questions, try to find answers for those questions. If you don't know where to start, we've got a reading plan chronologically that we're doing as a church right now. You can go out to the connect table. We've got little, uh, these things called field guides. In it is a reading plan. Just go and grab those and just start. It moves chronologically through the Bible in 18 months. You read five days out of seven in a week, and it will get through the entire Bible in 18 months. So go pick up your Bible and start to read it. Another way to determine in your heart to study God's Word is to then join one of our D groups that we've started. Another way to do that is to join one of our D groups, groups of three to five people in the same gender that are walking through this reading plan together, meeting every week to talk about what they're learning, talk about what they're studying, talk about what God is showing them, any questions they might have. Honestly, the main purpose of that structure was to be able to give accountability and help to be able to get us all in God's Word. And so if you want to be able to do that, you can get involved in a D group. You can ask about that at our Connect table. You can scan a little QR code in the bulletin and check, I think, somewhere on there you want to join a D group. If not, you can just come find me afterwards and say, I'm interested in D groups, and I would love to talk to you about them. Friends, determine in your heart to be a student of God's word. Because Jesus told us the greatest command, wrapping up, summing up the Bible. He says, here's the greatest command. Love the Lord your God with all your mind, with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind. And the second is like it, love your neighbor as yourself. But the greatest and most important command, he quotes Deuteronomy, love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your mind. How are you loving God with your mind? Have you determined in your heart to study his word? So Ezra shows us the importance of determination. He shows us the importance of study, but he also shows us next the importance of obedience. Ezra didn't just sit in a cave all day long reading uh, the Pentateuch and just absorbing all this information. He then went out and obeyed it. Listen, God's word is a lot like carbohydrates. Follow me. It's a lot like carbs. If you just intake carbs and sit around, it will be unhealthy for you. But if these carbs come into your body and then are used as energy to be able to go out then and live your life and they are then expressed in your life, then it becomes a healthy rhythm and you become the healthiest version of yourself. Friend, God's word is similar. If we just intake, if we just absorb, you will become an unhealthy follower of Jesus. Because God's word was not meant to just be a cul-de-sac in your life. It was meant to flow through you and begin to make a difference in your life. Because we are called not just to study it, but to obey it. We don't want to simply be hearers of the word. We want to be doers of the word. This is the warning that James gives. There's a certain deception we can have to coming to church, reading theology books, studying God's word, but then it doesn't actually make a difference in our lives. There's a deception there because it feels like we're doing everything right. Our knowledge is increasing. We're doing good. And James says, hey, man, be careful. As Gabe said, uh, he just hit the nail on the head. Even the demons believe that, and they shudder. The demons are great theologians. They know that God is one. They not only have an intellectual assent to the knowledge of God, they also have an emotional response to their knowledge of God, and they shudder. There is something more than just study. We have to obey. Jesus says, teach them to obey, teach them to observe all the commands that I've given you. Friends, it's got to make a difference in our life. 
We are saved by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone, period. But friends, a faith that saves is never alone. It produces a change. And if it's not producing a change, then we don't have that faith in the first place. That's the message of James. Imagine if you have a child, imagine telling your child, hey, go clean your room. Give a clear command. You expect obedience. You expect in a few moments to walk into the room, and all of a sudden, it's like you've walked into the Ritz-Carlton. This is it. What great obedience. There's always listen and obey right away, um, right away, the first time, right away, and all the way. This is, this is, this is what happens. Well, what happens if you tell your child, hey, go clean your room? They're gone for 15, 20 minutes. And they come back to you and they say, hey, mom, good to see you. You're good to see you as well. How's the, the, the room cleaning go? Remember what I told you? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, about that. Listen, mom, here's what I did. I went, <clears throat> I went and I studied a lot what you told me to do. Ooh, I got the sentence. I, I took it apart. I saw the way the clauses interacted with one another. I went back to the original languages to see uh, how it was in the, the original cognates there within the Greek and some Aramaic in there too. I then got some of my friends. We got a small group together to talk about what it was you told me to do. And mom, listen, I've learned so much. Thank you for telling me to go clean my room. How would you respond? But, but is your room clean? I'm, I'm glad that you did all of that, I guess. Kind of weird, but okay. But is your room clean? Guys, I worry that sometimes we hear what God has told us to do. We may even study what God has told us to do. We may get together with friends to talk about what God has told us to do. But have we obeyed him? Is it making a difference in our life? It's great that you just read the newest theology book. Or you can tell me the, the intricacies, and the differences between the 1689 Second London Baptist Confessional and the Westminster Confessional. But have you loved your wife sacrificially this week? Are you patient? Are you kind? Do you look at others as more important than yourselves? Jesus has been straight with us. God has been clear. We need to determine in our hearts... We need to study God's word, but friends, we need to obey it. To not just hear, but also obey. To study deeply and then obey joyfully and quickly. But again, Ezra doesn't end there. He continues on finally and shows us the importance of teaching. So the importance of determination, the importance of study, the importance of obedience, and finally, the importance of teaching. Now, Ezra had determined in his heart to study the law of the Lord, Obey it and teach its statutes and ordinances in Israel. Ezra knew before he could teach others, he had to teach his own heart. He had to study. He had to obey and follow. And then he went to teach others. Friends, whatever God is teaching you, he intends for you to teach that to someone else. God wants to work through you. Not just in you and ending in you. He wants to work through you. Again, that's one of the reasons we structured our D groups and community groups like they are. We believe, like the New Testament teaches, in the priesthood of all believers. That you are a saint, not because of what you've done, but because of your faith in Christ. That you are now a priest to be able to go and teach. This is what Jesus told each of us to go and do. So we want to create structures. We want to create spaces in which you, as 
priests of Jesus Christ can teach one another what God is teaching you. We want to see in community groups conversations happening, which, hey, here's what I'm seeing from the passage this week. Here's what God showed me through the sermon. And you then begin to share that to help teach one another. In D groups, getting together each week and saying, here's what God is showing me in his word. It's not a prideful thing. Friends, it's humble to say, God has shown me this, and I now want to follow and teach others. uh, We notice Ezra taught the statutes, not just the people around him, not even just in Jerusalem, but he determined in his heart to teach in Israel. His scope was the entire country. Friends, it as well widens our scope to see that God has called us to teach others, yes, our friends, our families, our neighbors, and our coworkers, but as a church to commit ourselves to go and make disciples not just of our neighborhoods, not just of our city, not just of our country, but of all nations. That is the scope of where we are to go and to teach. To read the Bible, study it yourself, then get together with a few other people to talk about what God has shared with you. We want to obey Jesus' command in the Great Commission. Yes, to go and to live missionally. Yes, to be able to make and see people come to know Jesus and be baptized, but also to teach to teach them to observe all that he has commanded. So we here at the Grove are unapologetically committed to teaching because we see it as one-third of the Great Commission, what Jesus has told us to do. We want to make sure we're living missionally, that we want to see people come to know Jesus, but we also want to commit ourselves to teaching and to learning, creating environments which we teach and we learn. And as we teach and we learn, we are not just teaching fads. We're not teaching my opinions. We are teaching this book. We are determining in our hearts to study this book. We are studying, determining in our hearts to obey this book and determining in our hearts to teach this book. It's why it's our very first conviction that we are ruled by God's word. That whenever the Bible speaks, we believe God speaks. And when God speaks, we listen and obey. No negotiations, no arguments, He speaks, we listen, and we obey. We stand underneath his word, and it informs everything that we do. It informs our student ministry. Our students have a lot of fun. They'll get together. They'll hang out on every Wednesday night. You saw uh, over the weekend they had a lot of fun. Uh, A few people got some some bumps and bruises, but we're we're past that now. Yellow team hid their flag a little bit too well, the red team may say, Um, but that's still up for debate. I have a lot of fun, but the, the, the cornerstone of our student ministry is not fun. The cornerstone of our student ministry is God's word. Every week, Garrett gets together teaching. They're walking through the gospel of John right now. Over this weekend, we had three main sessions talking about how we are to know, treasure, and obey Jesus. This book informs our student ministry. This book informs our children's ministry. Again, we're not just setting up childcare every Sunday. We want to be able to help uh, teach your kids on Sundays, but also be able to come alongside and partner with you as parents, as the primary disciples in your homes, to see how you then can go and teach uh, and make disciples in your own home. This book informs our children's ministry. It informs our worship services. We kind of just want to ask the question, how can we cram as much of the Bible into our service as we can? Hearing God call us to worship him from his scripture. Hearing God then assure us of our forgiveness through his word. 
having uh, throughout the uh, sermon series to be centered on his word. And then also at the end, the benediction is we leave coming from God's word. We want to inform uh, our services with this book. And it also informs our preaching, the preaching here at this church. See, most of the time here on Sundays, uh, we are expository preachers. What that means is most of the time we're just walking verse by verse, chapter by chapter through books of the Bible. We want to pick a book and then just walk through it and see what it is God has said to us. Sometimes, like right now, we'll go off on different topical sermons. But even, I hope, you see, within a topical sermon, we still want to be incredibly biblical. We want to find a text and then give the meaning of it. We want to hold a microphone up to God and let him speak to us. We want to model Ezra's ministry. Ezra honestly gives one of the clearest examples and best summaries of what it means to be an expository preacher. See, in Nehemiah, him and Ezra and Nehemiah were together. In Nehemiah chapter 8, verse 8, it says this of Ezra and some of the other teachers. It says that they read from the book, from the law of God, clearly, and they gave the sense so that the people understood the reading. Here's what Ezra did. He got up in Jerusalem. He read the book. He gave them a sense of the book, and the people then understood the book. That's honestly what we hope here within preaching. We want to stand underneath this book. We want to read it, give a sense of it, and for us to be able to understand it. When you begin to get a taste of it, you can't get enough of it. I love that was the response of the people in Jerusalem in Nehemiah 8. They then said this in Nehemiah chapter 8, verse 1. All the people gathered as one man into the square before the water gate. And they told Ezra, bring the book of the law of Moses that the Lord had commanded Israel. They didn't want Ezra's opinions. They didn't want Ezra's advice. They wanted Ezra to bring the book. And so for us, guys, listen, if you're here and you're at our church, I hope this is what we're striving to do. But a lot of you probably won't stay here forever. I hope you do. I'd love for you to. I love you. I would love you to be members of this church forever. But you'll probably move. You may go to another church. And when you do, what do you look for when you go to a church? Well, let me just give you the category of Ezra and Nehemiah here, that when you go, look for a pastor that's bringing the book. Look for someone who is following God's word. I love love architecture and the way architecture communicates something about God, especially during the Reformation. They would build their churches to communicate something about God. They did this in a number of ways. One of my favorites, though, is they would build their pulpits kind of up as these lecterns. You had to rise up. Ezra did this as well. You see in Nehemiah 8, they built a platform and everyone was underneath. Now, why? That wasn't just so you could see. It was to communicate that we all stand under God's word. It has prominence. It rises within the service. Not only that, but in that lectern, it had a chain across the stairs. And there was somebody assigned with the task to take the book and go first before the preacher, unhook the chain, walk into the pulpit, drop the Bible, and go back out to communicate what? To communicate that a pastor has no right to be in there unless the book goes before him. So listen, if we want to, in our next church, build something like that, I'm down for it. I'm sure we could have a new volunteer spot for the the bringer of the book. I'm totally down for that. But it communicates what? It communicates that we sit underneath it, that as we teach it, we sit underneath God's word, that even the pastor preaching only has any right being there if he is bringing the book. So friends, when you go somewhere else, find a church that brings the book. 
These people wanted the book. Friends, determine in your heart to find a church like that and demand it of your pastor. Bring the book. Don't settle for a pastor that brings his opinions, giving you advice on eight ways to be a better whatever. Find a pastor that brings the book, reading it and then giving the sense of it. Don't settle for a pastor that brings his political preferences, talking more about a political party than he does about Jesus. Friends, find a pastor that brings the book. Now, in the same breath, whenever this book speaks about something that has become political, find a pastor that will still bring the book and speak boldly into that issue. This is what should shape our lives and form our churches, that we as Christians are a people of the book. Let's determine in our hearts to bring it with us. Ezra determined in his heart to study the law of the Lord, the first five books of the Bible, the book of the law of Moses, the Pentateuch. So Ezra is a helpful example for us, but friends, we are a little bit different than Ezra because we have more than the five books of the law. And so we don't just determine in our hearts to study the first five books because we have something, not just the law, but we have now seen the fulfillment of the law. We don't just have Moses, we have a prophet far greater than Moses. And so our determination isn't just to study and read a book, it's to find out what is the book pointing towards. You see, in Luke 24, this was just after the resurrection, Jesus was with a couple of his disciples. They didn't recognize him. He was walking on this road to Emmaus with them. They're chatting it up. Disciples are sad because their rabbi has just been crucified. He's now buried in a grave. They're like, we gave our lives to this guy. He's dead. What are we going to do? And that guy is right next to them, no longer dead. But they couldn't see him. They couldn't recognize him. And they strike up this conversation. It's a fascinating conversation. You haven't read it in Luke 24. But the part that is so captivating to me and something I miss growing up in the church is that as Jesus is talking to them, it gets later on and they didn't understand what was going, what was going on. And Jesus says, listen, let me explain it to you. And then Jesus tells them this in Luke 24, verse 27, says, then beginning with Moses and all the prophets, Jesus interpreted for these disciples the things concerning himself in all the scriptures. You see, Jesus went to the law. Jesus went to the book of the law. He went to the Pentateuch, and then he went through the prophets. He went through the entire Old Testament, and he had this conversation with them, showing them how this entire book was all pointing to him. It was all bearing witness about him. It was all testifying about him. It was all setting the stage for him, the entire book. Jesus wasn't giving them a Bible study on the book of Ephesians because Ephesians hadn't been written yet. Jesus was going through the Old Testament. It wasn't divorced from Jesus. It was all pointing forward to Jesus. And if there was any conversation I think I would love to be in, I would love to be on that road to Emmaus to hear this man Read the word and then give that kind of sense to it. To teach them all the things concerning himself. Friends, this whole book is pointing to him. And so whenever we determine it in our hearts to study it, to obey it, and to teach it, there is a way to miss it if we miss Jesus. The Pharisees studied it. They obeyed it, quote unquote, and they taught it. But they didn't see Jesus. Friends, let's 
We have more than Ezra, and let's be more than the Pharisees as we then give ourselves to this book and determine in our hearts to read the Bible like Jesus reads the Bible, to look for him, to see him as the point, not ourselves. Goodness, the greatest example of this is we see it in the story of David and Goliath. When we don't read the Bible this way, how do we read that story? Well, here's David, here's Goliath. What's the giants in your life? What are the difficulties you're facing? What stones do you need to pick up to slay the Goliaths in your life? And there's kind of this grit and determination we feel like, yeah, I'm going to slay those giants. This is it. We just read the seven ways to slay the giants in your life. Here we go. I've got it. But when you read the Bible like Jesus, you read that story differently. And now all of a sudden you see that you're not David fighting your giants. You're the scared and frightened Israelites back in the camp that are afraid to go and fight your enemy. That there is this great and terrifying enemy in front of all of us. Death, sin, and hell staring us down. And friends, they are insurmountable. We cannot defeat our enemies. And we are just like Israel, standing back, worried, afraid to go and run and fight because we know that we can't defeat them. But there was a different boy from Bethlehem, a different shepherd from Bethlehem that ran to the battle lines in our place, that then fought our enemy instead of us and defeated them once and for all and his victory is then given to us, even though we didn't lift a finger to help him accomplish it. Because the story of David and Goliath isn't about you. You're not David. It's about Jesus. It's all pointing to him. So let's determine in our hearts to not simply become good understanders and good teachers and good students of this book. Let's be good students of the one in whom this book is pointing to, Jesus Christ. So friends, determine in your heart today to study not just the law of the Lord, but to study the gospel of the Lord. Determine in your hearts not just to obey the law, but to obey Jesus. And determine in your hearts to teach others everything that he has commanded you. Set your heart, determine in your heart to know him and to make him known. Let's pray. God, we are so grateful that you're a God who's spoken to us. You're a God who's revealed yourself to us, a God that we can know. God, help us to be a people that are marked by this book, that we would give ourselves to be able to understand and give ourselves to be able to study, to obey, and to teach who you are and what you've done for us. God, let us be a people of the book. God, would you start a revival, a reform, a reformation, even here within our church, within this community? And God, would it be founded on your word? God, would the truth of who you are be set free in our hearts and in our community? Would we then begin to believe different things, to do different things, and to teach different things? God, help us to go, to make, and to teach. We love you and we thank you for the grace that you've shown us. It's in Christ's name we pray. Amen.